Um, if you brought your Bible, please open it up to John chapter 19. So think New Testament, think Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books of the New Testament. John chapter 19, if you did not bring a Bible, you can find one, hopefully, in one of the chairs in front of you. Just reach down, grab one, um, and if you're using one of our Bibles, it's page 1072. Lots of pages in the Bible. And um, we're going to start reading in verse 33 of chapter 18. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, then went back inside the palace and he summoned Jesus and he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and your chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against Jesus. Now look at chapter 19, verse 12. And from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now we are in a message series on the Apostles' Creed. And I hope that as we recite the creed together, as you think through the creed, as maybe you go through it on your own, the more we do that, more that you do that, the more that we will see the creed, the Apostles' Creed, as the, the beliefs that, that shape us, that change us, instead of just some ancient document, some ancient saying, that we kind of rotely go through without having any real connection to our our life. And this is week four. Today we're talking about Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate and Jesus being crucified. And as we've done every week, I want us to say the Lord the, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed together. Will you stand up with me? Um, and the words will be on the screen. Let's say this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. Go ahead and be seated. So the title of this sermon, you can look in your bulletin to find, and it is this, Why Did Jesus Have to Die? And in answering that, you might turn to a scripture such as 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, which says why Jesus died. This is love, not that we love God, but that God first loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's a explanation of why Jesus died. To be a sacrifice. To be a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Not like the animal sacrifices that the ancient Jewish people practiced because of God's commands to practice those uh, ancient animal sacrifices, those imperfect sacrifices that you had to repeat over and over and over again because Why? Because they really never provided forgiveness of sins. It was just a temporary cover-up. It just pointed to their need for a real, permanent, perfect sacrifice. Jesus being that sacrifice. But I want to look at a slightly different question this morning, and it's this. Why did Jesus have to die an excruciating death on the cross. We can say that he had to die to be that perfect sacrifice for our sins, covering up our sins once and for all, paying the price for our sins. We can say that. But why did he have to die an excruciating death on the cross? Why did he have to suffer under Pontius Pilate? Have you ever thought of that? I mean, animal sacrifices... In ancient times, I mean, they tended to be bloody, but they were rather quick. Kind of a quick slit to the throat, and and it was over. There, There wasn't great suffering. They didn't include, the sacrifice didn't include first beating the animal over and over again while it was alive. They didn't include first tearing the skin off of the animal while it was alive. These animal sacrifices didn't include a slow, agonizing death taking hours. Just a slit to the throat and it was over. Why couldn't it have been like that for Jesus? You know, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, uh, that, that, that Mel Gibson movie that came out 15 or so years ago, after that movie came out, it, it People, it was easier for us to see what it would have really been like for Jesus. We can read history books of what crucifixions included and the beating and, and the, 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 just the, the torture of it. But since that movie, we could actually kind of see what it would have looked like and how Jesus had his skin ripped off his back before he was crucified and how he was beaten mercilessly. 
to the point where he couldn't even carry the, the, the limb that he would be crucified on. He had to carry out that big piece of wood, that big piece of timber. He couldn't even carry it. It was so weak. We could visualize Jesus dying by suffocation on the cross, hours on the cross, slowly suffocating. That's how people died through crucifixion. Now, if God needed a sacrifice to make our sins right, which he did, why couldn't there have been a more merciful death of Jesus? Why do you have to suffer? That's the question I want to ask today. And there is a second question that I want to ask today, which is related to that. You're not going to think it's related to it, but here it is, and we'll talk about the connection. The other question is, what makes you feel whole? So two questions. Why did you just have to suffer, die an agonizing death? And what makes you feel whole? How are those questions related? All right, so look at that question. What makes you feel whole? What makes you feel like a whole person? What makes you feel complete in life? I want you to think through that yourself. What is it that that provides that, uh, that inner spark or light that, makes you feel, ah, I'm whole, I'm complete. Because there is a lot in life that will tell you you're not good enough, right? There's a lot in life that will tell you you are lacking. There's a lot in life that will tell you that life is a competition and you have to prove your worth by measuring up, at least keeping up, if not outdoing others. There's a lot in life that will... Ask, how are you measuring up to others? And if you are not measuring up, there's a lot in life that will tell you. You see your failures? You see? You see how incomplete you are? You see how you are lacking? So what do you strive for to help you feel whole and complete? Now let's talk about why those two questions are related. I'm convinced that in order to really know the importance of Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate, not just that he had to die for our sins, but that he had to suffer, I think you have to understand the history of human beings longing to be whole. And we'll get there. But in order to look at that history, we have to look at the storyline of the Bible, which I'm going to try to summarize in about 15 minutes. So wish me luck on that. And in your note sheet, you will see several scriptures that are mentioned. And I'm going to highlight these different scriptures that go out, go throughout the Old Testament primarily. And if this is one of your first times to church and reading through the Old Testament or knowing the storyline of the Old Testament is kind of new to you, well, here's here's your summary. And um, if you already know it, here's a review. But I, I want us to put this, paint this picture of human beings trying to be whole, and then we'll look at Jesus' suffering and how it's connected to that. So starting near the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, God creates this beautiful garden, and he has this man. He puts him in the garden, tells the man, take care of this garden. 
And then he, he creates a woman to be with a man as a helper, and they're both to tend this beautiful garden, and they are married. There are many remarkable things about Genesis chapter 2, but the most remarkable thing about Genesis 2 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 is that God is walking with the human beings in the garden. There is this, there is this um, oneness. There is this relationship with human beings and God. The, the garden is this special presence of, of God. And that's a theme that we find throughout scriptures, by the way. Where is the special presence of God? In Genesis chapter 2, it's right there in the garden. And so what we see in Genesis 2 is that the Garden of Eden is this place of union with God. That's in, its importance in the storyline. The man and the woman share this intimate relationship with God where they talk to each other. They hear from one another. And then in Genesis chapter 3, there is trouble because the man and the woman, they sin against God. If you know the story, of course, you know what happens. There is this separation from God's presence. And it's a big deal, but often we don't understand how big of a deal it really is. Because, as we last week we talked about there being this gap between human beings and God. This gap of between where God wants things to be and where they actually are. And we feel this gap in our relationship with God, our walk with God, because now... I may just be speaking for myself, but there are times when God seems distant, when God seems far away. And I can remind myself God is close, but there are times I'm like, God, I need to hear from you. I'm not. There's this gap. And here's the deal. We have gotten used to this gap. Kind of normalize this gap. Let me tell you, that is not how God designed us to get used to this gap. He designed us in his image, Genesis chapter 1 tells us. That tells us something about how God met us. He made us to walk very closely with him. In fact, God designed us so that our walk with him would be the most important thing about who we are. Really? Really? In the book of Acts, so jumping to the New Testament, this isn't in your notes. In the book of Acts, I don't think it's in your notes. In the book of Acts... The Apostle Paul is, one of his stops is in the, the city of Athens, and he's walking around the city. He sees all these statues, these idols to gods. He's like, well, these people really are hungering from God for God. And he tells them that. He says, I can tell you're hungry for God. And Paul is thinking, makes perfect sense to me. And then he tells the people why they are hungering for God. He says in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, For in God we live and we move and we have our being. Now, we're not used to thinking like that today. No, we're, th- we're used to thinking it is in oxygen that we live and move and have our being, right? We need oxygen. If we don't have oxygen, we will die. Teenage boys may be thinking it is in pizza that we live and move and have our being. If we don't have pizza, we will die. Maybe not, but we definitely think that about oxygen. We need it. What happens if you remove us from the oxygen source? What happens to our bodies? We would experience a complete and total breakdown, right? There would be a complete disintegration of our human bodies if you were to remove us from oxygen. 
In the same way, when we deprive ourselves of our walk with God, it's not that we're just doing without some option in our life. God is not the optional equipment in our life. And we can keep on going perfectly fine without him. No, in him we live and move, we have our being. If we deprive ourselves from our our walk with God, we are depriving ourselves of life itself, just like oxygen, just like the air that we breathe. And so we see this, this truth that disunion with God, it's not just, hey, there's a gap and we're used to it. Disunion with God is the disintegration of humanity. It is the disintegration of what it means to be a human being. You won't find that in the philosophy books. You will find that in the Bible. If you don't have God in your life, you are less human than what God meant for you. But it's not just a walk with God that you were meant for. You were also meant for a relationship with one another. And a breakdown in our life with God will mean a breakdown in our life with one another. And we start seeing this. Let's go back to the Bible story. We start seeing this en masse in Exodus chapter 1. The Israelite people are now living as foreigners in Egypt, and they become very numerous. And the Egyptians, lo and behold, they do not find that as a blessing. These foreigners living among them they be, that are becoming so numerous, that is not a blessing, according to the Egyptians. That is a threat. And there is this breakdown of human relationships. And the Egyptians, what do they do? Well, they enslave the Israelites. They toss the little baby Israelite boys into the river so that they would drown. This complete breakdown of this relationship with human beings. It's this visual reminder that sin doesn't just disintegrate our relationship with God, it disintegrates our relationship with other people. So sin disintegrates human relationships. And it's in this human mess that God does something. And in Exodus chapter 3, it's really interesting. God starts referring to the Israelites in a way that he has not done before. He starts calling them kind of a new name. Can you think of what it is? In Exodus 3, he starts calling the Israelites, my people. It's the first time we see that in the Bible. God says, these are my people. He tells the Pharaoh, let my people go. These are my people. And he frees them. But what we have to understand is God actually has a much bigger plan in mind. He's not just freeing his people. He wants to free all people. God does two things. When he sets the Israelites free in Egypt, one, he calls a people to restore humanity, not just giving them their own freedom. He wants to free everyone. How does he do this? In Exodus chapter 20, one of the most important chapters we will find in the scriptures. 
God does one of the most important things in human history. What does he do? God gives the Ten Commandments to restore vertical and horizontal uh, love. First four commandments, what are they? I, I should have listed them on the screen. Have no other gods. Don't worship idols. Don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. Honor God's Sabbath holy day. Those first four commands are ones that help restore this vertical relationship, our vertical love with God. And then the last six commands, honor your father and mother. Do not steal. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie about one another. Do not covet your neighbor's stuff. Did I leave any out? Those last six commands are there to restore this vertical relationships that we have with other people, to restore the love, the vertical aspect of our love. And so in Leviticus, which many people think is oh, it's just a book of the Bible that contains all these strange antiquated rules. Why should we read the book of Leviticus? Well, it's in Leviticus that has this command, love your enemies as yourself. And you're thinking, hey, I thought that was Jesus in the New Testament. Yeah, that is Jesus in the New Testament, quoting the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, these Israelites, they were supposed to be a light to the nations, showing what life could be like with restored vertical love with God and horizontal love with one another. They were to be a light. Now, 1 Kings chapter 8 is also one, this massive moment in human history. Because we said that Genesis 2 maps out the special presence of God. And where was that special presence? In Genesis chapter 2, it was in the Garden of Eden. That's where God was. That's where they walked with God. In 1 Kings chapter 8, it's different. Because the Israelites, they build this massive, mighty temple. And 1 Kings chapter 8 tells a story of of when the Ark of the Covenant, this, this, this gold box that, that for some reason God said, I'm going to dwell in this box. <laughs> it's going to be the place of my special presence. Don't touch the box. Bad things happen if people touch the box. Because that's where God's presence is. This box, the Ark of the Covenant, gets moved into the temple. And what we see in Gen- uh, 1 Kings chapter 8 is there is a new place of God's special presence. The temple is the new place of union with God. If you wanted to be in God's presence, you wanted to have this union with God, we'd go to the temple. And everything was lining up for the Israelites to help heal the world by being the shining nation with restored vertical love with God, horizontal love with one another. There's only one problem. They were completely ignoring Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and they were not loving their neighbor as themselves. And the ancient prophets of the Old Testament, you think through all those prophetical books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Amos. There's this, this, Message to the Israelites, you are ignoring this vertical relationship, this love between one another. 
And I want to read you this from Isaiah, because think about this temple that God is said to, to have a special presence in, the temple where all these sacrifices were done, these, these rituals that would help bring people into God's presence, the Israelites into God's presence. I want to read you what God says to the Israelites through his prophet Isaiah. One point, God says, stop bringing meaningless offerings. And the people are like, God, you told us to bring these offerings. Stop it. Your new moon feast, your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. This is God talking. God, you told us to gather in these festivals. I hate them with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, my temple, and you come and you spread out your hands in prayer, guess what I'm going to be doing? I'm hiding my eyes from you, even when you offer many prayers. I am not listening. Your hands, why? Because your hands are full of blood. Not from the animal sacrifices that you're offering. That's not where the blood's coming from. Wash and make yourself clean. Where's this blood coming from? Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek what? Justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Work on your vertical love for your neighbor, please. God is saying. The temple was supposed to be this place where God was, where the people could be with God. God says, not as long as you perpetuate injustice. And here's what God shows. And this is what the scripture shows. The temple, which is, who cares about a temple? It's the place of God's special presence. It is meaningless without horizontal love. It's really quite disappointing if I think about it. I mean, this fantastic temple spent all this money. Like, go to where's the biggest mansion in Houston? River Oaks somewhere? I don't know. Imagine this River Oaks mansion and all this work and time and artistry spent into building it. And then God says, eh, never mind. I I don't think I'm going to be there anyway. I don't think I'll stay here after all. And it's just another example of this brokenness of Genesis chapter 3 and the brokenness of Exodus chapter uh, chapter 1. And the kingdom of Israel that God builds doesn't seem to do much of anything that would help the world with its problems. In fact, the kingdom of Israel, in many ways, just it wound up looking quite similar to all these other pagan nations around them. And why is that? I suspect it was because the ancient Israelites were looking for wholeness in the same place that every other nation around them was looking for wholeness. The Israelites were wanting to be whole in the same way that people of other religions were wanting to be whole. Why were they perpetuating injustice? Why do people do that? It's not just for kicks. Why were they, at best, turning a blind eye to the less fortunate around them and, at worst, taking advantage of the less fortunate around them? Why? Because... 
Injustice happens when people find their wholeness in status, in position, in comfort. If that's where you seek to be whole, injustice is quick to follow. Because you don't care about this horizontal love. It was true in ancient times. It's true today, isn't it? It was true in Rome. See, ancient Rome, let's, let's talk about Jesus and Pilate. Ancient Rome, it was alluring. It was, it was the, the pinnacle of society up to that point. It was advanced. If you were a Roman citizen, you were on the top. Unless, unless you weren't the ruling class in Roman society, unless you weren't in the wealthy class of Roman society. See, in ancient Roman Jesus' day, there still was this ladder of upward mobility where people were trying to climb up to the top in order to find some sense of wholeness. Some things haven't changed. Rome was full of nobodies trying to be somebodies, and it was full of somebodies trying to remain somebodies by neglecting the nobodies. And that's the kingdom of the world, my friends. Have you ever seen that principle at work today? Just, hey, I want to be a somebody. I don't have time for nobodies because i got to protect me being a somebody. That's the kingdom of the world. That is the kingdom that Jesus is against. Now listen to this. Jesus did not die to cover up your sins, for you to remain living in that kingdom, in the kingdom of the world. And unfortunately, there are many people today who treat Jesus' death as a get-out-of-hell-free card that upon death can be presented to whoever is at the pearly gates of heaven so that they could have automatic admission. And so in the meanwhile, they can live however they want to, in the here and now. If all Jesus wanted to do was present to you a get-out-of-hell-free card, he could have just a quick slit to the throat and be done with it. Instead, he chose to suffer, not just that quick little death, giving us the get-out-of-hell-free card. Instead, Jesus' death and the way he died did so much more for us. So look at John 8, 36. This isn't in your note sheet, but it's in the scripture we read. John 8, 36. Jesus says, my kingdom, it's not of this world. At the end of verse 36, my kingdom is from another place, but it's coming to this world. It's coming. And one place that we see that in the scriptures is the ancient book of Daniel. Last book I want to review, part of the storyline. Daniel, uh, if you've ever read Daniel, I mean, you see the, you read the stories, you might be familiar with Daniel in the lion's den and the blazing furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's kind of a cool story. And then Daniel, the book's just kind of flat out weird after that. And there's some strange visions. But if I could summarize the book of Daniel 
in in a line or two, it is this. There are various kingdoms of the world, and they are all variations of the same theme. Try to be on top. (laughs) But there is a kingdom that will come and smash them all. And here's the interesting thing. No matter how hard people try to be on top, there's always a fall because the book of Daniel shows there's another kingdom that just comes and takes your place. It takes over. There's the Babylonians. And then after the Babylonians, there's the Persians. You remember this from world history, I hope. And after the Persians, there came the, what, the, the Greeks. Alexander the Great, after the Greeks, came Rome. And Rome and Daniel is, is, is pictured as just this ultimate kingdom. There is Caesar, there is Pontius Pilate. And all of these kingdoms in Daniel ask this question, what is life all about? Is it about being bigger and badder than the last guy? If that's what you make life about, you are in for a fall, Daniel says, because there's just going to be another kingdom that comes and takes your place. What is it that makes you feel whole? Making a good impression on others? Daniel points out, if that's what it is, you'll never feel whole. You'll always feel hungry. It will never be enough. And then Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision. Here's the vision. He sees, he sees one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. I wonder who he's talking about. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom, it's not of this world. It's from another world. But guess what? It's coming here. I'm bringing my kingdom here. And it will never go away. A new kingdom that will never be destroyed is coming. How does Jesus do it? By suffering. By taking all the injustice of the world. That's what the Old Testament shows you. Injustice after injustice after injustice. And Jesus takes all of that injustice and he puts it on top of him. But instead of just, you know, bashing that injustice, he just lets it hit him with all of its might. I mean, think about that trial that we read about in John 18 and 19. It's a kangaroo court. Here's Pilate. He's the judge saying, this guy's innocent. I can't find no reason to find him guilty. Crucify him anyway. Why did he suffer under, under Pontius Pilate? Rome was, it was the most powerful kingdom at that time. It instituted crucifixion as a cruel execution method to squash those who were threatening their kingdom. Jesus is like, a threat? They crucified him anyway. He was a completely innocent man, was the victim of a complete mockery of a trial. And Jesus allowed all of the evil of injustice to inflict its worst on him. And he did it so he could give you something new to live for, not seeking our wholeness in external stuff, 
seeking our wholeness in something else. So wrapping this up, Jesus died and suffered to forgive your sins and much more. Know that Jesus died to give you much more than just a clean slate. He came to set you free of the shame of your sins by removing your guilt, by paying the price for your sins, yes. But he also died to set you free from the shame of your failures. Because Jesus shows us what makes you whole in life. It's not what you do. It's not what you build. It's not what you accomplish. Wholeness is not seen in business success or failure, education success or failure. That's not what makes you whole. What makes you whole is your union with God. And here's the truth. You are most human through your life with God than through anything else. That is what makes you the most human being you can be, your, your, your life with God. And through the cross, Jesus sets you free from accusations of being a failure. If this is what makes you most human, your life with God, these other things that the world will say, oh, look at, look at, look at you failing. I'm like, okay, I'm the most human being I could possibly be because I have this walk with God. Satan can shout lies of shame and accusations of failure to you. Look at how you're failing in life. Satan, I'm the most human being I can be because I am walking with God. Do you want to be whole? Look to your Savior on the cross. Because wholeness is union with God, and your union with God is no longer in a place. It's no longer the temple. It's no longer the Garden of Eden. Your union with God is now found in a person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Last filling on your sheet there, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the new place of union with God. And you can have life with Jesus now. You can be whole now. You can be set free from your failures now. If you've never embraced this life with Christ, or if you've thought of Jesus' death on the cross as simply giving you that automatic entrance into heaven but not doing much else in your life, Right now, you can embrace a walk with Christ, union with Christ, friendship with Christ. And behold, let's pray. Almighty God, you have given us your Son, not just as that perfect animal sacrifice. No, 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 so much more as the one who shows the way to a life with you. We pray that you would help us to come before you and throw off what hinders us, throw off these feelings of guilt and shame and failure, throw them off and know your delight, know your love, know your acceptance of us as we walk with you our hearts would be made whole. And then, Lord, we pray that as that vertical love is restored, that this horizontal love between our neighbors would too as well. Use us. Help us to be loving and gracious and forgiving 
and, and peace-loving, peace-giving people that you can use to build your kingdom that will not end in this world. Amen.